Recorded live. Hello, everybody. This is William Fink of ChrisTheGenny.org. Today is Friday, July 26, 2013. Praise Yahweh and thank you for listening. I may talk for a few minutes in the program introduction tomorrow night about our continued success at ChrisTheGenny.org. It, it's beyond my imagination. However, I want to take a moment now to thank all of the good people who make Christogenia possible and who help to make certain that we are able to be here from month to month. Christogenia would be very different without you if it existed at all. I praise Yahweh and I thank him for you daily. I was on Monday night only for an hour. It it, it was rather late for me nowadays with um, Carolyn Yeager on, on her Monday night program, carolynyeager.net. I talked about um, the evil of civil rights cases in the context of the Trayvon Martin verdict, of course. Uh, I don't really care about the um, the squat monster to shot Trayvon Martin any more than I care about Trayvon Martin, but, but it is a good way to illustrate um, certain things. Uh, I talked about the evil of civil rights cases and, and the Civil Rights Act, which, which is... Um, extremely draconian. Carolyn, I forget who she quoted, but she quoted somebody that I, I think it may have been Bruce Campbell, who, who is, he, he has some good ideas, but he's a clown in a lot of other ways. He, he um, said that the Civil Rights Act is a way to enslave whites, and, and it certainly is. It, it's a way to, um, to ensure that whites really don't have a, a, um, a, a voice or any recourse against the onslaught of aliens. As soon as a white rate lifts a, a hand to um, uh, against a minority, he, he's facing a civil rights case in any instance. I also talked about something that I quantified a couple of years ago on on on, um, on an open forum program, I believe, and, and that was the. Um, the tremendous infrastructure that needs to be built every time that man wants to defy nature. If man wants to fly like a bird, well, men aren't supposed to fly like birds. He, he has to build billion-dollar aircraft to fly like a bird. If man wants to go to the moon, and if, if indeed we ever went to the moon, I'm not even going to go there, please. He, he has to build billions of dollars of equipment and infra infrastructure to do such a thing. Same thing if he wants to go to the bottom of the sea in, in a bathy sphere. But, uh, I'm sure those things are pretty expensive to to, um, to construct and, and costly. I, I'm sure there's a great amount of science that goes into something that, that seems in today's world to be rather uh, a rather simple device. I'm sure it took great engineering skill to make batty spears and submarines that were, um, that were durable. Well, if man wants to integrate society with different races, and, and it really boils down to um, whether or not white people, you know, if white people want to have wild beasts roaming the streets amongst them and, and not get bit, right? Well, well, it takes a tremendous amount of infrastructure to do that. And, and that's the reason for the Civil Rights Act. And that's the reason for the welfare society, for, for the great society of, of the 1960s. That's the reason for the welfare state. It's a tremendous infrastructure put in place so that man can defy 
nature. And the wild beasts, basically savage beasts, that's what Negroes and Mexicans are, to live amongst them. It's sort of like bribery, right? But, but that's what it is. Every time man wants to defy nature, he has to um, create a huge investment, create an infrastructure that allows him to do that. that that's, I, I try to make that analogy. I, I think that it, it's, it's a working one. That, that's, why that, um, that, that's why all integrated societies, that's why all multicultural societies are basically tyrannies because it takes a tyranny to force diverse peoples to live together peaceably. And, and it's not really peaceably. It, it, it's maybe um, a landscape to- dotted with temporary abeyances of, of, of violence, but it's not really peace. There can be no peace in a multicultural or, or a mixed-race society. Peace cannot exist. Peace will not exist on this earth until the return of Joshua Christ, and the elimination of all non-whites, as Scripture promises. I'll be talking about that tomorrow night, addressing once again some of the statements of um, the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, I'll call it, the Novemberists, the Joseph November crowd, who scoff and and raise great clouds of dust at our doctrines and, and the things that we teach, which are clear in Scripture. However, they're not comfortable with those things. Well, bastards aren't comfortable with the rules against hybridity. That's pretty obvious. There was a Greek poet, I think it was a Aeschylus. It may have been a Aeschylus. I'm sure it was a Aeschylus who said that the bastard is always the enemy of the trueborn. That's the way it is. That's the way it was in Scripture. I'm sure that's where the Greeks got the idea from. Okay, the book of Acts, chapter 10, part 2. In the first segment of our presentation of Acts, chapter 10, we saw that non-Judeans, meaning those who had not been circumcised into Judaism, regardless of whether they were converts or if they were born Israelites, had not yet been presented with the gospel message by the apostles. We established this in several ways in our earlier presentation. And it is summarized in Acts chapter 11, at verse 19, where it says, and I quote, So then those who were scattered from the tribulation, which happened after Stephanus, after the stoning of Stephen, had spread so far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, to no one except only to Judeans. That one verse. In that one verse, there is no better proof than this verse, this testimony in the book of Acts itself, that the Ethiopian eunuch and all others to whom the gospel was brought up to this point were indeed Judeans dwelling in various places, but who were identified otherwise by citizenship or geography, as we have established from the evidence presented and from reading the accounts in context, rather than lifting a verse or a line or even a single word out of context and using it to support an agenda. The Judeo-Christians, the mainstream 
sects. They're experts at that. That's what they do. This chapter opens with Peter being at the house of one Simon the Tanner, who was ostensibly a pious Judean, since until this time Peter understood that Judeans should only keep company with other Judeans. And we see Peter attest that himself at Acts chapter 10, verse 28, where he says, you know how it is unlawful for a Judean man to join or associate with another tribe. One morning at the house of this Simon, Simon the Tanner, Peter is hungry. And while Simon's servants are preparing his meal, he goes up to the rooftop to pray. Knowing that Simon is a pious Judean, or Peter would not have been staying at his house, it is apparent that Peter should not have been concerned over whether the meal being prepared for him was in accordance with the scriptural food laws. Indeed it was. However, Yahweh God purposed to give Peter certain instructions in a vision and evidently uses Peter's hunger as a device by which those instructions are presented. Peter then sees in his vision a linen sheet depicting, and I quote, all the four-footed creatures and reptiles of the earth and birds of heaven. And Peter is beckoned to offer sacrifice and eat. Now a vision of all the four-footed creatures would ostensibly contain both the clean and the unclean creatures as they are distinguished in the law. It says all the four-footed creatures. However, Peter responds, not at all, Master, because not ever have I eaten anything profane and unclean. These are Peter's words, and they're not the words of God. Therefore, they do not imply that Peter should eat things deemed unclean by the law. Rather, Yahweh God responded with the words, the things which Yahweh has cleansed you do not deem common or profane. The questions which must be asked at this point are several. We see in Acts 10.17 that Peter was perplexed with this vision, but realized once the men in which Cornelius, once the men which Cornelius had sent had appeared, that this was the reason for the vision and that he should accommodate them. However, can we imagine that God cleaned every beast simply because he showed every beast to Peter on the sheet? And should we interpret the vision according to Peter's reaction or according to Yahweh's response? As the mainstream denominations do, should we formulate our Christian doctrine based on Peter's response? Or should we rather formulate our doctrine based upon Yahweh's instruction? Since the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah 55, 8, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, we had better understand the vision of the linen sheet from Yahweh's answer and not from Peter's protestation. To do that, we had better understand what are the things which Yahweh has cleansed. 
Therefore, last week, giving this presentation, we cited several pertinent scriptures from the Old Testament, all of which contained promises from Yahweh that he would cleanse the children of Israel of their sins in connection with their redemption. We read that from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, and from Joel. Here we shall repeat one instance of that promise found in Jeremiah 33.7 where it says, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And continuing on, And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. There are absolutely no promises of such a cleansing made to anyone else in Scripture but to the children of Israel. On the cross of Christ, Yahweh cleansed the children of Israel of their sins according to those many prophecies which we have cited and many more which we didn't. They alone are the things which Yahweh had cleansed. From ancient times, the priesthood of Israel failed to distinguish in the law of God between the holy and the profane and the clean and the unclean. Things holy, well, things holy are clean, but things clean aren't necessarily holy. And things profane are ritually unclean, but things profane aren't necessarily unclean according to the law. Things unclean according to the law can't possibly be clean and can't possibly be sanctified. They can't possibly be holy. These are all different categories. In Ezekiel chapter 22, Yahweh, through the prophet, is addressing the princes of Israel, verse 6, and the house of Israel, verse 18. Then Yahweh says in verses 25 and 26, There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. And they have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I, meaning Yahweh, am profaned among them. Her princes, her princes in the midst thereof, are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood, and to destroy souls, to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeking, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith Yahweh God, when Yahweh has not spoken. Here in Acts chapter 10, Peter says that he had never eaten anything common and unclean. Yet Yahweh responds by saying, The things which Yahweh has cleansed you do not deem common or profane, as the corresponding Hebrew word is translated in Ezekiel 22:26, that the priests were not teaching the children of Israel the difference between the holy and the profane. 
and the clean and the unclean. Yahweh only mentioned what was deemed profane or common. And this shows that Yahweh was concerned with the profane, but not necessarily with the unclean, even though the sheet contained a vision of all sorts of animals. The things that are unclean in the law are forever unclean, and they cannot be cleansed. You can't clean a pig or a dog. Under no circumstances can they ever be sanctified on the altar of Yahweh. The things that are profane are clean under the law, but they have not been sanctified. And the works of the law, which are the rituals, were done away on the cross of Christ. However, the natural laws of our God cannot be done away with. Pigs and dogs are forever unclean, and there is no way to sanctify them. However, steer and sheep and other clean animals can indeed be sanctified. Ezekiel 44:23 Yahweh speaking of the the new temple the vision of the new temple says and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean However long that Peter was perplexed with his vision is immaterial, for he did that which was warranted and accompanied the men which the Roman centurion Cornelius had sent to him, so that he could transmit the gospel to them. Later, Peter indeed realized that the people to whom the gospel was being transmitted were from the dispersions of Israel, as he writes to them in his epistle at 1 Peter chapter 2 from verse 9, but you of an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness, Israel was to wander in darkness, from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light, who at one time were not a people, but now are the people of Yahweh, those who have not been shown mercy, but are now shown mercy. With this, Peter says things that may only be said of the children of Israel. For elect race, royal priesthood, and holy nation are all descriptive of the words spoken of Israel explicitly in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6 as part of the Old Covenant. In Deuteronomy 14.2 and 26.18, the references to those not a people, but who are now shown mercy, belong to a prophecy concerning the children of Israel, which was made as they were being put away from Yahweh their God in the first two chapters of the prophet Hosea. From Hosea 1.10, and 2.23, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass, and Peter is writing the fulfillment of this in his epistle, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, 
you are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. And I will sow her, Hosea 2.23, speaking again of the bride of Christ, the children of Israel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. She was put away in the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests of the ancient world, of ancient Israel. She did not obtain mercy. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say unto them, which were not my people, thou art my people. The exact same thing which Peter is quoting in reference to the exact same people. And they shall say, thou art my God. When Israel was one with Yahweh, they were holy. When Israel was put away for their idolatry, they became profane or common. With the mercy of Christ and his sacrifice for them, in the gospel they could once again become sanctified, as Christ said to his apostles. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. John 15, 3. And in John 17, verse 15, we see, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, referring to his disciples, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, for they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Hebrews 2, 11. Paul, writing to Hebrews, writing to the circumcision, where most of his epistles were written to the uncircumcised. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Paul, writing to Hebrews, he that sanctifieth is Yahshua Christ. And they who are sanctified are only the children of Israel. And they're all of one. All of one race, all of one nation, all of one seed. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. For which cause he took upon himself the seed of Abraham. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 9. Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor, nor the rapacious shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. They were unclean. In the gospel, they were cleansed. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Yahshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. The children of Israel have been sanctified by Yahweh their God on the cross of Christ and cleansed themselves from their sinful practices 
and are deemed fit and clean by him once they hear and accept the gospel. While in the first part of our Acts chapter 10 presentation, we have already presented some of the Old Testament scriptures promising to Israel the cleansing of their sins so that it is proven that only they are what Yahweh has cleansed. There are also other scriptures which prophecy that the Spirit and the Word of God would come to Israel. And these two are promises which were only given to the children of Israel, to those self-same people. I will read two, both from the prophet Isaiah. From verse 44, from, I'm sorry, from chapter 44, from verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, Thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, who will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour upon him wa- I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit, Acts chapter 2, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. Nobody else received that spirit. And my blessing upon thine offspring, seed our offspring, two different ways to say the same thing. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am Yahweh's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto Yahweh, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. The people have never changed from ancient times. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Yahweh challenging the idols, the vain idols. These scriptures were fulfilled when the nations of Europe, among whom were those same people Peter wrote to in his epistles, heard and accepted the gospel. The Christ is the fountain of this water, is evident in many scriptures. Jeremiah 2.13 Zechariah 14.8, John 4.10, 7.38, and Revelation 7.17. The Spirit and the blessing were promised to the children of Israel and to nobody else. And the apostles certainly understood that, even if some of them understood it rather late. Isaiah chapter 52 from verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength. O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. 
the holy city, for henceforth there shall be, there, there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Because at the last days only Israel shall be saved, and all Israel shall be saved. And because all Israel shall be circumcised in heart and clean in the eyes of God. Verse 2. Shake thyself from the dust, arise and sit down. O Jerusalem, loose thyself from the hand from the bands of thy neck. I'm sorry, I need glasses. O captive, daughter of Zion, Christ came to release the captives who were taken away, who were put out of the presence of Yahweh. In the history of ancient Israel, Christ came to release the captives, Luke 4.18. O captive, daughter of Zion, for thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. Elsewhere it tells us that the children of Israel sold themselves into sin. They sold themselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money, redeemed on his cross. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause, a reference to the two captivities of Israel. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them made them to howl, saith Yahweh. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I, Yahweh, telling us that he is the Christ. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth Good tidings of good that publisheth salvation, that say unto Zion, thy God reigneth. This is a prophecy of the gospel, and it's only for the children of Israel. The word gospel means good tidings, as the original Greek word means good tidings or good news. Paul quoted from this very verse at Romans 10.15. This passage is a prophecy of the spread of the gospel of Christ. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together they shall sing, for they shall see eye to eye when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Zion is the mountain of his people, not the geological location. Break forth into joy. Sing together. Ye waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the people. Another analogy for the children of Yahweh. Luke one sixty eight. Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel. God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. They understood the scriptures which were being fulfilled. Isaiah 52.10 Yahweh has made bare his holy arm 
in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is alluded to at Luke 151. The phrase, all the ends of the earth, is an allusion to the dispersion of Israel, which we have demonstrated at great length quite recently in the presentation of Amos chapter 3. The horns of Joseph will push his people to the ends of the earth. The children of Israel were spread under the ends of the earth in their punishment. Verse 11, in direct relation to the gospel message and the prophecy of the spread of the gospel of Christ, depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean, the word sing is added to the text. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. The vessels of Yahweh, those Adamic spirits which hold the spirit which our race has from Yahweh. Genesis 2.7. The word thing was added to the text. The reference is to unclean people. As Paul says, go ye out from them. Israel was and is to be a separate people. The word thing was also added to the text of the King James Version where Paul later quoted this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It does not belong in either place. The unclean is a reference to people not cleansed on the cross of Christ. People that can't be sanctified. Verse 12, for ye shall not go out with haste, nor go out by flight, for Yahweh will go out before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high, as many were astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see. Paul also quotes this to the Romans. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Thus, this with the surrounding chapters of Isaiah are a substantial messianic prophecy, which only includes the children of Israel and no other peoples. The gospel is a matter of prophecy, and it's a matter of prophecy that the gospel was for the children of Israel and for nobody else. The nations and kings which were sprinkled are the nations and kings of Israel, which we see in the commission of Paul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. the nations and kings which Israel had become in the centuries of their separation from Yahweh their God, as Paul of Tarsus explains in, the pro, in, in his explanation of the faith of Abraham, in act, in, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 4. Peter's vision had nothing to do with food, but with people. And that's fully evident in verses 19 and 20 of this chapter where it says, And upon Peter's considering about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, 
Three men are seeking you. So arising, get down and go with them, not making any distinction because I sent them. This is in spite of the fact that the animals and the call to eat were a device used in order to transmit that message. In God's natural law, unclean animals were deemed unfit for good reason. And since they are not fit for consumption, they are unable to be sanctified upon the altar. The substance of neither animals nor man has changed since the law was given. And unclean animals are still not fit for consumption. Heaven or hell, your destination will not change for the eating, but you may very well get to it sooner for doing so. More importantly, Esau was a profane person. As Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12, as the fruits and the fruits of his profanity, which were the products of his fornication, are bastards. And they're unclean by the law. And they are not able to be sanctified. They can't be cleansed. They cannot be cleansed by Yahweh or by man. Even Yahweh says in Jeremiah that their sin can't be washed off. Because the people of Jerusalem in that time were race-mixing. And the sin cannot be washed off of the bastards. He planted a pleasant plant, and it sprouted strange slips. The sin of those strange slips, it can't be washed off. God can do anything. Yes, he can. But they can't be cleansed by Yahweh or men because Yahweh tells us himself that he does not change. And since men cannot persuade Yahweh to change. In the first part of our presentation of this chapter, we left off with Peter descending from the rooftop, greeting the men which Cornelius sent to find him, and inviting them into the house of Simon, Simon the Tanner, where it begins at verse 23, and it says, Therefore, inviting them in, he lodged them. Without his vision, he wouldn't have even had any discussion with them. We will pick up from that point now. Then on the next day arising, he went with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa went with him. So Peter wasn't alone. This was a large group of people. And the next day he entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them, having invited together his kinsmen and the necessary friends. Certain codices have they entered into Caesarea, the majority text among them. The third person singular, which belongs in all the, well, well in the codices, Vaticanus and Beze, the majority of codices have they in this instance. The third person singular is not unusual since biblical narrative most often follows only the central figure in the group. That's true of the travels of Abraham, that's true of the ministry of Christ and, and the descriptions of that. The Greek phrase, translation note, the Greek phrase, tus anekahius philus, 
is very literally rendered the necessary friends here. And Agkahias is literally necessary. That's what it means. It doesn't mean much more. Thayer adds, citing this verse, friends connected by the bonds of nature, connected by the bonds of nature or of friendship. And here the King James has near friends. And both of them attribute to the word anikahias, a meaning it does not ever have. And Thayer practically treats the word as if it were a substitute for the noun phylos or friend, rather than an adjective modifying that noun. It's clearly evident that necessary friends here are those friends which one is compelled to invite to major events in one's life, such as weddings or anniversary celebrations. You don't really like your brother-in-law, but you've got to invite him. You don't really like the guy next door, but you've got to invite him. They're the necessary friends, right? Cornelius, doing so, viewed Peter's visit as a major event. Verse 25. And it happened that upon the entering of Peter, Cornelius meeting with him, falling at his feet, worshipped. Along with many other variations of this section of Scripture, the Codex Beze has a much longer version of this verse. I'll repeat it. And upon the approaching of Peter to Caesarea, one of the servants running ahead announced his arrival, and Cornelius, leaping out, then met with him, worshipped, falling to his feet. The Codex Beze has many such interpolations and many differences with the other manuscripts all throughout Acts that are too numerous to mention, and most of them are really meaningless. Verse 26, you could just... It, it, it's just interesting to see the willingness of scribes to um, embellish the text. Then Peter raised him, saying, Stand up! I myself also am a man. And this is the perfect example that we should not reverence any man or seek to be reverenced by our fellow men. For we only have one master, and we are all brethren, as Christ himself tells us in Matthew 23, 8. Verse 27 and conversing with him, he entered in and finds many gathered together. And he said to them, You know how it is unlawful for a Judean man to join to or associate with another tribe. The 4th century papyri P50 and the Codex Beze have with a man of another tribe. This once again establishes that until Peter's vision, none of the apostles attempted to convert anyone to Christianity except Judeans, which includes the men of Pentecost, the people of the cities in Samaria, and the Ethiopian eunuch, who was certainly not a Negro. He was a Judean. This is again corroborated in Acts 11.19, as we have already read here, that until this time, even though the apostles were scattered throughout Palestine, they taught the word, they preached the word to nobody but Judeans. It's substantiated again, it's corroborated again at Acts 15.7, where Peter is recorded as having said that, Men, brethren, you know that from the first days Yahweh has chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe. And of course, 
Peter is referring to this event of his vision and the preaching of the gospel to the household of Cornelius. The statement made by Peter here that it was unlawful for Judean man to join to or associate with another tribe, that statement was true, certainly, of the ancient Israelites, beginning with Exodus 19.5. And while some may protest that strangers were allowed to join themselves to Israel under certain circumstances, for instance, Exodus 12.48, this was only true of Adamic peoples, people of the, the same white race as the Israelites. A distinction which is lost with the translation of several different Hebrew words into the same English word stranger. A distinction which was lost with the translation of those words into Greek. And even a distinction which was lost in the original Hebrew language itself when it began to become obsolete. And in later books, words were used in contexts where they had not been used in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. This is evident comparing certain passages of the Pentateuch with later books such as those of Chronicles, where it's obvious that the dialect changed and that words were used in different nuances. However, after the return from Babylon, Ezra and Nehemiah still upheld the commands in the law and separated the Judeans, Judeans at that time were Israelites who returned to Judea from captivity. They separated them from the Canaanites and other peoples of the land. Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra chapter 10. Put away your strange wives and those who were born of them. None of them. None of them are worthy to be counted among the children of Israel. Yet by Peter's time, while his statement here was certainly still true in Scripture, it was not in practice. The Canaanite Edomites, descendants of the accursed Esau, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Romans 9, 1 through 13, they were incorporated into the larger Judean nation circa 130 B.C., for which we can see Josephus's Antiquities, Book 13, Chapter 9, or Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraph 34. From which time the Edomites practiced Judaism, and, according to Josephus, they were considered to be Judeans. During that period, Judeans also began proselytizing and converting all willing comers through baptism, which we discussed at length here in the first part of our presentation of this chapter of Acts last week, quoting from the Gospel and from John Whitefoot's commentary. So it should be apparent that Judeans had become exclusive on religious terms and not on the proper terms of race. For they embraced the accursed Edomites and other converts, while they considered their fellow Adamites and the Israelites of the ancient dispersions as profane because they were not circumcised. Now, simply because Peter's statement 
that it is unlawful for a Judean man to join to or associate with another tribe was really no longer true in practice did not mean that Peter was not correct about the law and did not keep it. He certainly was correct about the law, and he evidently did keep it as best as he could. Peter was not responsible for, nor could he have controlled, what happened in Judea in the centuries before his birth. And neither was he responsible for the actions of, nor could he control, the people in Jerusalem or the government of Judea. We have demonstrated in our presentation of Acts chapter 5 that the apostles indeed distinguished between the race of the high priest and their own countrymen, which is evident in verses 6 and 23 of that chapter. So ostensibly, Peter and the other apostles did try to keep the law and did cite the law that it was unlawful for a Judean man to join to or associate he didn't say with another nation or another religion. He said with another tribe. That would be a correct interpretation of the Hebrew law concerning the Israelites. But it was not practiced by the government and the leaders of Judea. It hadn't been practiced for 200 years. Peter couldn't help that. He sought to keep the law. Continuing with verse 28, Yet Yahweh has explained to me not to call any man profane or unclean. Wherefore, having been summoned, I came without contradiction. Therefore I ask, on what account have you summoned me? Peter didn't know about the vision of Cornelius, right? He's asking now. The words, not to call any man profane or unclean, are the words of Peter and reflect how he initially interpreted the vision. This does not negate the words of Yahweh, which Peter repeats in Acts chapter 11, where it is recorded again that he said, the things which Yahweh has cleansed, you do not deem profane. The book of Acts is a book of transition, as we shall see again both here and in Acts chapter 11. It took the apostles quite some time to reconcile all of these events which occurred in relation to Christ with the context of Moses and the prophets. And the Old Testament scripture was their constant guide and therefore cannot be dismissed. The proof of their transition and the proof of their reliance and continued faith in the Old Testament scriptures is found both in the later chapter of Acts and in the epistles of these same apostles. The apostles were men, as Peter himself has said here. And they too were learning as they progressed through life. Verse 30. And Cornelius said, from four days ago, about this hour, the ninth, I was praying in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in a shining garment. Shining garments are reminiscent of the garments that the angels wore, who were around the tomb at the resurrection of Christ, right? The ninth hour is 3 p.m., where the Codex Beze has from the third day until the present hour. That's an embellishment. 
And then along with the 4th century papyrus P50 in the majority text, it reads, I was fasting and praying at the ninth hour. Although there are some variations among those manuscripts in the exact wording, the Codex Wildeanus has, I was fasting and praying from the sixth hour until the ninth. So some of the some of the verses have a large degree of variation among the oldest manuscripts. As we have before explained, Cornelius received his vision first, and in order for it to be effective, Peter also had to receive a vision, so that he would accept the man which Cornelius was instructed to send to him. Likewise, in Acts chapter 9, Ananias and Paul both had to receive corresponding visions through which Yahweh introduced the two men to one another. With this in mind, if someone ever comes and says that he saw you in a vision and he has a message for you, if you had not also received a vision telling you what to anticipate, then you should be highly suspicious of that person. Verse 31. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer is heard, and your acts of charity are remembered before Yahweh. Therefore send to Joppa, and summon Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Certain codices, along with the majority text, insert at the end of this verse the words, who coming shall speak to you. The text here follows the 3rd century papyrus, P45, and the more ancient codices, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, as well as the Codex Alexandrinus. It often seems that early scribes would sort of borrow phrases from other portions of Scripture where the same events were, were described, but which varied slightly to fill out the versions of the accounts as they were re related in other places or, or in diverse places, as if the apostles needed help in relating the scripture. That, that's frequently noticed in the New Testament in certain manuscripts, especially the Codex Beze. Verse 33, Therefore at once I sent to you, and you coming have done rightly. Cornelius is very confident concerning the nature of his vision, that it was indeed from God, and that Peter did rightly to comply. Therefore now, we all before Yahweh are ready to hear the things having been prescribed to you by the prince, or by the Lord, the majority text has, by God, Verse 34, and Peter, opening his mouth, said, With truth I comprehend that Yahweh is not a respecter of the stature of persons, a respecter of the stature or status of persons, but in each nation he fearing him and performing righteousness is acceptable to him. He sent the account to the sons of Israel. That qualifies the all of these statements. He sent the account to the sons of Israel, preaching the good message of peace through Yahshua Christ, who is Prince of all. As for the phrase, 
but in each nation. Where the King James Version has every nation. The Greek word ponti is the dative singular of pas, which is all or the whole. And as Little and Scott explain in that dative singular, it also has an idiomatic usage equivalent to another Greek word, akastis, which is each or every. If the words were plural, if nation was plural, then they should be translated all nations or every nation. As the plural of the Greek word pas is more naturally used when it accompanies a plural noun. This seems to be a minor difference. However, consistent, a consistently proper reading of Greek eliminates many of the universalist nuances which have been given to the scripture by the translators. <coughs> each nation, each of the nations of Israel. Israel was to be scattered into nations, and Yahweh would call his people out of those nations, and not all of them would listen, and many of them would. That's the story of the dispersions of Israel. Now to address the Greek word, pros obolemptes, which in this form occurs only here in the New Testament, and which in the Christogenian New Testament is a respecter of the stature, or the status of persons. That word stature, I chose to use stature in my translation. An archaic use of the word stature is as a synonym for the word status. The related word, prosobolampsia, appears three times in the epistles of Paul and also in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, the Apostle James defines the word well. He illustrates it for us very well. Many commentators would insist that the use of these words in Scripture somehow proves that Yahweh God does not distinguish between races. However, that assertion is contradicted in many places. The Scripture cannot be made to contradict itself. As James illustrates, in the second chapter of his epistle, and it's also illustrated in Isaiah, but I didn't pull that out for this evening. This idea rather describes such a difference as that between a wealthy man and a poor man. And James gives a lengthy example, and I will read that from James 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not, with prosopolampsia, do not, with respect of the stature of persons, hold the faith of our Prince Yahshua Christ of honor. For if perhaps a man should enter into your assembly hall with a gold ring and a shining garment, and a beggar should en enter in, in a filthy garment, then you should look upon he wearing the shining garment and say, You sit here comfortably. And to the beggar you should say, You stand there, or sit beneath my footstool giving him a lowly place, right? Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges of evil reasonings? That made a distinction among yourselves is the key phrase there. Listen, my beloved brethren, has Yahweh not chosen the beggars in society to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you dishonored a beggar? 
Do the wealthy not exercise power over you, and they themselves drag you into trial? Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name labeled upon you, meaning the name of Christ? The stature, the status of persons here had nothing to do with race, since both Romans and Judeans were, were at the time racially indistinguishable except for their status, which included their dress and their customs, customs such as circumcision. Flavius Josephus, in book 12 of his Antiquities of the Judeans, explains that if the Judeans hid the circumcision of their genitals, they could appear to be Greeks, even if they were naked. That's in Antiquities, book 12, line 241. Notice that James compares the treatment of the wealthy to the poor, and he says that by discriminating against the poor, have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges of evil reasonings? With this language, James affirms that the wrongful distinction between the wealthy and the poor man, the wrongful distinction being made is among the recipients of his epistle and not between those recipients and any outsiders James's epistle is addressed to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and to nobody else. Therefore, he is telling those people of those 12 tribes that they should not discriminate amongst themselves. The phrase, respecter of persons, must be understood within the context of all of the promises of Scripture which are exclusive to Israel. It must be understood within the context of the commandments that Israel is to remain exclusive found in the New Testament in such places as 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2, both of which we have quoted this evening. This word prosopolantes and the related words and relevant phrases are not to be understood in contradiction to the promises and commandments. Therefore, it is a respecter, not of the race of persons, not of persons in general. It is a respecter of the status of persons, as James describes it. It has nothing to do with race, because the non-Adamic races are never included in the covenants of Israel, Old Testament or New. They're unclean animals. They can't be sanctified. While Peter mentions each nation, he then says that Yahweh God sent the account to the sons of Israel who are in each of those nations. And Peter never intends to transgress that statement because the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken whether we want to believe that Peter understood his vision correctly or not. The scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, Peter says that he sent the account to the sons of Israel. He didn't say he sent the account to the sons of Israel and anybody else who would hear it. Peter understood that the children of Israel were widely dispersed in ancient times. Verse 37. You know the report 
which came throughout the whole of Judea, beginning from Galilee with the immersion, which which John proclaimed, the immersion or the baptism, which John proclaimed. Yahshua from Nazareth, how Yahweh anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, who passed through, and and this phrase is rendered very literally, literally, I'm sorry, the third century papyrus P45 actually has, who went about, who passed through doing good deeds and healing all those, being overpowered by the false accuser, since Yahweh was with him. Peter is confident that these Romans, who must have been in Judea for a considerable time, had heard of John the Baptist and of Yahshua Christ. Reports of the things which transpired in relation to these men and the ministry of Christ, as well as his crucifixion and resurrection, must have circulated far and wide, and they must have persisted among the people for a long time, until the time when Christianity finally became the accepted religious paradigm of the greater society. Here Peter sees those who were sick as having been oppressed of the devil, as the King James Version has the phrase in Acts 10.38. It may well have been translated all those being ruled over by the devil. The Codex Laudianus has Satan rather than devil, or the adversary. At Luke 11.52, Christ tells those supposing to be teachers of the law of God, Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. The entire world, or the entire society, is in a state of wickedness. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 5.18, the whole world lieth in wickedness. In Luke and in Matthew, in chapter 4 of each gospel, we learn that the devil, the false accuser, as I am wont to literally translate the word diabolus, rules over all the kingdoms of the world. It is evident that illness and disease and all of the plagues of man were seen as having come from the fall of Adam. And the events described in Genesis chapter 3, since the devil, or false accuser, is one and the same as the serpent, is one and the same as those original fallen angels, which revolted from Yahweh God as it is described in Revelation chapter 12. These are the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And with Adam's fall, they rule the world unto this day. The deceit of these people and the fallen state of Adamic man are the reasons why we have sickness and death in the world today. Because we don't have truth and righteousness. Paul of Tarsus explains this in Romans chapter 5 where he says that just as by one man sin entered into the society or the world, and by that sin death, and in that manner death is passed to all men on account that all had done wrong. And he is referring to Adam and to his descendants. Then Paul says that in the transgression of one, many die, And in the transgression of one, death is taken reign through that one, still referring to Adam, with the many, the many again referring to Adam's descendants. 
And then Paul says that in life, they, meaning all Adamic men, will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ, which he explains is the gift of the favor of God, which God has in store for Adamic man. Then Paul again says, so then, as that one transgression is for all men a sentence of condemnation, in this manner then through one decision of judgment, for all men is for a judgment of life where we see again that all Israel shall be saved. Finally, Paul says in this regard, therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, meaning Adam, Paul's creating analogies here, the many, meaning the sons of Adam, were set down as wrongdoers. In this manner, then through the obedience of one, meaning Christ, the many, meaning the sons of Adam, will be established as righteous, Romans chapter 5, verses 12, 15, 18, and 19. While it is not the main purpose of his message in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus makes a statement concerning how Christians should hold themselves in distinction to others, and if they do not, their health shall indeed suffer for it. Here is where the teachers of the law went wrong the teachers of the law who Christ chastised they don't teach the law they didn't teach the law properly they didn't distinguish as Ezekiel said between the clean and the unclean and the common and the profane here from the Christian New Testament from 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. Consequently, whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself, and thus, from of the bread let him eat, and from of the cup let him drink. For he that is eating and is drinking eats and drinks Condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. Paul is talking about interlopers in the congregation. For this reason, there are among you many feeble and sickly, and plenty have fallen asleep because we didn't distinguish the body of Christ and allowed those interlopers into our congregations. If then... We had made a distinction of ourselves. Perhaps we would not be judged. The King James Version makes a huge gaffe there where they take the word crisis and anacresis and translate them both as judged as if there's no difference between the compound word and the simple noun. Anacresis is to make a distinction. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, Perhaps we would not be judged. But being judged by the prince, we are disciplined in order that we would not be condemned with the society. One chapter earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul explained to these same Corinthians that they were descended from the Old Testament Israelites. And indeed, history shows that they were. Here, Paul explains that the world is condemned. And the children of Israel are to be granted mercy. 
but that they would have less disease and premature death if they had made a distinction of themselves in the world. Verse 31. The statement that Christians would not be condemned with the world is the significance of the exclusive promise of salvation to Israel. Only descendants of ancient Israel properly being Christians. The world is condemned. Verse 39. And we are witnesses of all which he, meaning Yahshua Christ, did both in the land of the Judeans and in Jerusalem, whom they then had killed, hanging upon a tree. Him Yahweh raised in the third day and offered him to be manifest, not to all the people, but to those witnesses chosen beforehand by Yahweh, to us, we who ate together and drank together with him after his resurrection from the dead. Peter did not need to describe at length the things which Christ had done, because, as we have seen, these Romans must have already heard of all these reports. Rather, Peter only attests to them that he and his companions were among the original witnesses of the ministry of Christ, Therefore, thereby attesting that those things were true. That the reports the Romans in Caesarea had received concerning the events in, of, of, of the ministry of, and death and resurrection of Christ were true. This also indicates that at least some of the original disciples, and perhaps even some of the twelve, were among those men who accompanied Peter from Joppa. He said, we are witnesses. He spoke in the plural. There were other men with him. The codices Beze and Laudianus have 40 days after his resurrection, rather than just we who ate and drank together with him after his resurrection. Varying slightly, slightly with each other, they use a customary alphabet symbol for the word 40, for the number 40, rather than spelling the word out. Everywhere in Luke's writing, numbers are spelled out, except in various differences amongst a minority of manuscripts, especially the Codex Beze. Of course, the first Christian Pentecost and the dispensation of the Spirit was roughly 47 days after the resurrection. Verse 42. And he instructed us to proclaim and to affirm to the people that it is he, meaning Christ, who is appointed judge of the living and the dead by Yahweh. To this did all the prophets witness, all those believing in him, are to receive remission for errors through his name. Peter's appeal to the prophets can only be in the context of what the prophets had said, that all those of Israel would receive this remission of their sins. Both Israel, the remnant in Judea, and uncircumcised so-called lost Israel, which by this time had become many nations, Rome being one of them. There is nowhere in the prophets where it is implied that people who are not descended from the ancient Israelites can share in these things. Nowhere. Isaiah 45, 25, in Yahweh shall all the seed, all the offspring of Israel be justified and shall glory 
verse 44. As Peter was speaking these things, saying the Holy as Peter was speaking these sayings, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those hearing the word. And those believers of the circumcision, as many as had come with Peter, were astonished that also upon the nations is the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out. For they heard them speaking in languages and extolling Yahweh. Then Peter responded, Is any man able to forbid water for them, not to be baptized or immersed? who received the Holy Spirit even as we. And he commanded them to be immersed in the name of Yahshua Christ. And they asked him to abide for some days. Notice that the Holy Spirit descended upon these people without any water baptism having yet taken place. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of Baptists in Christian identity who hate me for this. It took Peter himself some time to realize what had happened here. And when he does realize it, he also realizes and professes the implications. Peter says in Acts chapter 11 from verse 15, And with my beginning to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, even as also upon us in the beginning. Then I remembered the saying of the prince as he spoke, Indeed, John baptized in water but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit for this very reason. This is the last time that water is used in relation to baptism in the New Testament. The book of Acts is a book of transition, and this indeed was one of those transitions. The baptism of John was a baptism of cleansing in water that was instituted before the cross of Christ. And it was a matter prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. It had implications in fulfilling the law in relation to the proper sacrifice of the Lamb of God. For both the priests and the sacrifice had to be cleansed. And John the Baptist was appointed to conduct that cleansing. From this point on, Water is not mentioned in connection with baptism anywhere in the rest of Acts. Rather, when Priscilla and Aquila had first encountered Apollos, who had only known the baptism of John, which was a baptism in water, they corrected him. As we read in the last verses of Acts chapter 18, from verse 24, And a certain Judean named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, a learned man arrived in Ephesus who was capable in the writings. He was instructed in the way of the prince, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught precisely the things concerning Yahshua, knowing only the immersion, the baptism of John. And he began to speak openly in the assembly hall. And Priscilla and Aquila, hearing him, took him aside and more precisely exhibited the way of Yahweh to him. And upon his wishing to pass through to Achaia, the brethren wrote to the students urging them to accept him, who arriving greatly helped those who believed through favor. For vigorously did he thoroughly confute the Judeans in public, exhibiting through the writings, Joshua to be the Christ. With this we see 
that the baptism of John in water was not considered to be the precise way of Yahweh, for the need of such a baptism had passed. Likewise, when Paul had later encountered certain men who knew only the baptism of John, we see this account in Acts chapter 19, and I quote from verse 1. And it came to pass, with Apollos being in Corinth, Paul had passed through the highlands to come down into Ephesus, and finding certain students, then said to them, So believing, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they to him, Rather, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, In what have you been baptized? And they said, In the baptism of John. Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance for the people, saying, in him coming after him that they should believe, that is, in Yahshua. And hearing, they were baptized in the name of Prince Yahshua, and with Paul's laying hands upon them came the Holy Spirit upon them. And they spoke in languages and prophesied, and they were in total about twelve men. Therefore, at Ephesians 5.26, 5.25 and 26, we read, the words of Paul, that Christ also has loved the assembly and had surrendered himself for it in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word. You were clean through the word which I have spoken to you. And at Peter 3.21 we read, that baptism is not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but a demand of a good conscience for Yahweh through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ, which is important. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, that we have one baptism, and it is evident that such a baptism is in his death through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ for which we may compare Luke 12.50, where Christ states that now, and this is several years, this is some time after he was baptized by John in the River Jordan, Christ states that now I have a baptism to be baptized in. And compare that to Romans 6.3, where Paul states, are you ignorant that as long as we are immersed or baptized in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are baptized, understanding the sacrifice which he made for us is Christian baptism. Yahshua prays at John 17, 7 for Yahweh to sanctify them, his disciples, in the truth, to cleanse them with the truth. Your word is truth. The word cleanses Israel. Ye are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. John 15, 3. The children of Israel sanctify themselves upon receiving that truth. Because Yahweh has cleansed them on the cross of Christ. And no baptism ritual conducted by men can augment can add to, can improve on that cleansing. I've been baptized by Christ. I will not be baptized by men. 
We've all, all Israel has been baptized by Christ. We immerse ourselves in the understanding of that baptism. That is Christian baptism, not some ritual over in a river somewhere or a lake or a bathtub. I will be here next week with Acts chapter 11, Yahweh willing. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren, once again addressing the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, the posers, the great impersonators who have been seeking to discredit us. Good night and thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh.